morning and welcome to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live round the clock and round the world on WBAI.org. I am your host, David Brand, coming to you live from my home studio in beautiful Ridgewood, Queens, on a hill overlooking a little fishing hole I like to call the Newtown Creek Superfund site. We're continuing to broadcast remotely to ensure to ensure social distancing and to limit the spread of the coronavirus in New York City. I want to acknowledge our engineer, Sean Rhodes, who's at the controls this morning, making it all happen. Thank you, Sean. And to all our listeners this morning, thank you for joining us on this Labor Day weekend. Maybe you're listening on the way to the Jersey Shore, to Coney Island, or to the Rockways. Maybe you're chilling in Cretona Park, or you're about to play soccer at Flushing Meadows Corona Park. Or maybe you're at your kitchen table filling out the census, and that would be great, but we'll get to that in a minute. City Watch is a weekly news show covering politics, justice, and social issues in New York City, our state, and our surrounding area. We have a great show today focused on the climate crisis, New York City's school school reopening plan, and of course, something top of mind for many of us, something we can't escape right now, the presidential election. We're going to do that with a, with a twist, but the election is 58 days away on November 3rd, and if you haven't registered to vote, there is still time. The deadline to register in New York is Friday, October 9th. In New Jersey, it's Tuesday, October 13th. And in Connecticut, if you're listening while cruising up 95 right now, the deadline is Tuesday, October 27th. And that's interesting. Connecticut lets you register to vote until a week before the election. In New York, you basically have to do it a whole month in advance. And so issue a voter access there. And maybe we can talk about that with one of our guests later. But while, while you're at it, Please make sure to fill out the census while you're registering to vote. It takes less than 10 minutes. You go to 2020census.gov, 2020census.gov, or you can do it by phone at 844-330-2020. That's 844-330-2020. Just do it. The Trump administration has shortened the deadline to complete the census until September 30th. It was supposed to be October 31st, but then last night there was – Another breakthrough in this uh, ongoing census saga, when a California judge halted the Trump administration's attempt to shorten the deadline and said, no, you have to continue counting U.S. residents until the October 31st deadline. Uh, We'll see if that holds up. That is a lawsuit right now in federal court. Just more confusion. So let's avoid that confusion. Just fill out the census. Go to 2020census.gov. Coming up later in the show. We'll have State Senator John Liu, who previously served as New York City Controller. He's now the chair of the Senate Committee on New York City Education. So we'll have a lot to discuss with him about this new plan to reopen schools on September 21st. Speaking of an ongoing saga with the census, we have another one with school reopening here in New York. And there's still many issues left to address. We'll also talk with climate justice advocate Patrick Houston from the organization New York Communities for Change. We are, of course, in the midst of hurricane season. It's a period made worse by by the climate crisis. And we'll talk to Patrick about the impact in our area, especially in lower income communities. But to get us started, we are fortunate to have an honest to God candidate for president of the United States joining us today. It's not Biden. It's not Trump. His name is Tootsie Warhol, and he's a former Brooklyn prosecutor where he worked with Spanish speaking survivors of domestic violence. And he's a voting rights and social justice advocate who served as chief of staff for civil rights attorney William Wachtell. It was in that role that he found himself part of a summit on civil rights and voting rights with President Donald Trump in Trump Tower just a few days before the inauguration in 2017. Now, Tootsie Warhol was face to face with Donald Trump, and he didn't like what he saw and he didn't like what he heard. The meeting, he says, galvanized his second career as a performance artist, a satirist, and yes, a presidential candidate. So here to talk about that is Tootsie Warhol. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. This is Tootsie Warhol, and we're wishing you and all the great Americans a tremendous and safe Labor Day weekend. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming on and taking some time from your, uh, I guess, busy campaign and performance season right now. You recently shared a a tape. You recently shared a tape of a meeting you had in Trump Tower back in 2017. You shared it with a couple news organizations, including Independent. And on the tape, Trump says some pretty bizarre things about race, about uh, his belief that hundreds of thousands of people voted illegally. 
And he said some things about how he's the man to appeal, most of all, to black and African-American voters. Can you talk about what happened inside Trump Tower that day? Yes, I can tell you about that day, David. And it was a very hateful day when I had a meeting with Donald Trump and I went with great civil rights leaders to discuss voter suppression and voter ID, which are very important topics right now, very important topics as we approach this great election, the great race of 2020. And Donald Trump said terrible things in that meeting, which was a meeting that shaped my life. It shaped it very strongly, I can tell you that. And he shaped it because he said terrible things to great African-American leaders. He said the first thing that he said when we walked in the office, he goes, you see that? That's Mike Tyson's boxing glove. That's Sugar Ray Leonard's uh, boxing belt. And that's Shaquille O'Neal's shoe. It's a tremendous shoe. It's a huge shoe. And he's not so subtly naming every black uh, African-American person that he knows to give us the illusion that he has good relations with the African-American community. But that's not true. We know that's not true. And what he said, this he said this straight face to Martin Luther King III. He goes, I listen better to the African-American people, better than anyone else, better than anyone in this room. And that, to me, it was a very hurtful thing to say to anybody. But to say that to the son of Martin Luther King Jr., and this was on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a great day where we're celebrating a great hero, to say that to his son means he is so out of touch with what is going on in the world and his, re his relationship to the African-American community. And I can tell you, David, it was this meeting right there that inspired my art and my activism that I'm doing now as Tootsie Warhol and changed my life and made me realize that I actually had to run. And I am running for president, and I'm running very strongly, and I am the anti-Trump candidate. So tell us a bit about your campaign platform. What is your, what's your slogan here? The slogan is Make America Smart Again, and that's what we're doing. And uh, we're running a tremendous campaign. We're talking with great uh, women, women of color, uh, to particularly be my vice presidential uh, candidate because I'm looking for somebody to file. I can tell you we're having very strong conversations with, uh, uh, with uh, Omarosa, with Stormy Daniels, and, uh, and also with Rosie O'Donnell. And I can tell you we're going to be transforming the cabinet. I'm going to be putting in the greatest cabinet you've ever seen because we're going to be creating new positions. So I'm going to be creating, as president, Secretary of Black Lives Matter. This is a cabinet-level position, the highest. And we're talking to Whoopi Goldberg, and she would be a tremendous Secretary of Black Lives Matter, the first Secretary of Black Lives Matter, because Black Lives Matter a lot. And Donald Trump has never said that. He has a problem. He won't say Black Lives Matter. And, and he's very antithetical to that entire movement, and it's a very important movement. So we'd have Whoopi Goldberg as a secretary of Black Lives Matter. I'm telling you, we're considering very strongly Oprah as secretary of state, and she would be a tremendous secretary of state. And also, very importantly, because we're still in the midst of a pandemic, an epidemic, a plague. There's a lot of names. You can call it whatever you want to call it. And Donald Trump has done a terrible job. He said, we've got almost 200,000 dead Americans. Terrible numbers. The worst numbers out of any country. And he said, it is what it is. It is what it is. That's what he said. He has no empathy. And we would be putting in Bill Gates as the head of the CDC because our CDC failed us. We were supposed to have the most high-tech, the most powerful, the most well-funded uh, virus center in the world that was the leader, and they failed. So, so those are some of the things that we'll be doing. Uh, we'll be having Greta Thunberg, the great Greta Thunberg, who is a very, very bright young lady. She is, you know, Donald Trump says he's a super genius. He's a super dummy. And I know that because I've met with him face to face. And we're going to have Greta Thunberg, who is a 17 year old, bright young lady. We're going to put her on a uh, warp speed naturalization, and she will be the head of the EPA. These are great things. You want to talk about global warming is a huge problem. Donald Trump says it's a hoax. It's not a hoax, it's a real problem. California is on fire right now, and we're fighting hurricanes every week in this great country. And we're going to have Greta Thunberg as the head of the EPA, and you're going to see global warming stop right in its tracks. So you're obviously a major opponent of Donald Trump. Are you concerned that your, uh, you running could take away votes from his main competitor, Joe Biden? No, I think Biden is tremendous. Kamala is a super tremendous person, and I wish him well. You know, like Donald Trump said to Ghislaine Maxwell, he said, I wish her well. No, I wish them well, and I think they're going to do very strongly in the election. But I have a campaign manager and a press secretary, and we have a, com a comprehensive 
uh, strategy to make sure that we are only taking away votes from Donald Trump. It's me versus Donald Trump, and we're taking away votes from him, and we're not hurting Biden and Kamala, so I wish them well. Talk about how your performing arts career got started. How did you, how did you begin? What were you doing before? And then how did you begin be parodying someone who can be a little challenging to parody? Well, it was very, he's very challenging to parody Donald Trump, but I met him. I shook his hand and he imparted to me the spirit of the beast. And what my performance is, it's an anti-Trump satirical performance. And what I am doing with you right now, David, which is a great radio appearance, and I want to thank you for having me on WBAI. It's a great radio show. And, uh, but what it is, is I'm channeling that beast that I got from him shaking hands with him and being in the room face-to-face, orange person to orange person, right there with him, and giving the experience of what it's like to meet with Donald Trump behind closed doors to you and to your great listeners and to all of the people that I meet. But I'll tell you, my performance started out of a great need because one year ago, just this summer, one year ago, the Whitney Museum, which is a tremendous museum in New York City, the greatest city in the world, uh, they had what they call the Whitney Biennial, which is their biggest show of art in America now. And it's supposed to be talking about everything in America now, except it failed to talk about Donald Trump. And he's kind of a big deal. Love him or hate him, he's a very big deal. And so I said, this is a terrible thing. What they have going on in this museum doesn't represent what's going on in America. And I said, if they're not going to put Donald Trump in the show, I'm going to put Donald Trump in this show. So I just started showing up to the biennial almost every day for two months. I was in the galleries until I became such a star in the galleries that they said, Mr. Warhol, you're going to have to stand outside in front of the museum because the people, they wanted pictures, they wanted selfies, they wanted me to kiss their babies. This was a year ago. You could go face to face. There was no masks. And it was a tremendous thing. And what it was called was making the biennial great again because they had a very good art show. They had work about Black Lives Matter. They had people kneeling for the anthem and they had very important political works. But it wasn't truly great until I brought Donald Trump seriously into the conversation and the people, they loved it. I was a huge star at the Whitney and I love the Whitney very much. Tell us about how your time in the Brooklyn DA's office, your work there and your work as an attorney has informed some of your advocacy and your performances. Well, I can tell you right now that I know a lot more about police brutality and about the problems that we have in the criminal justice system than Donald Trump. And I have, this is the God's eyes truth, I have more degrees than Donald Trump, I have a law degree, I have a, an undergrad degree, and I'm a lot smarter than Donald Trump. And what I can tell you is that we do have a problem uh, nationwide that, that, we, that we have a prosecutor's office like the Staten Island District Attorney, which investigated Eric Garner's death, which was a terrible thing that happened six years ago this summer. And the Staten Island District Attorney, they work with the local police hand in hand. So they're buddies. The, the Staten Island DA, for example, probably has lunch with, with the police commissioner every month just to catch up and be chummy. So you can't have the, the district attorney policing their own police force because they work in tandem. So at the most fundamental level, we have to have an independent prosecutor who is a really tough prosecutor who's really looking out for communities that are being taken advantage of and brutally murdered. It's a terrible thing what's been going on in this great country, especially towards black people. And so we have to have an independent prosecutor who is doing this in all jurisdictions, because even in New York City right now, we still have local district attorneys investigating their own police uh, agencies. And you know what happens? Nothing gets done. Nobody gets indicted and there are no charges and then there's no justice. And that's what I want. I just want to bring justice. Well, Tootsie, we just have a, a minute left. So I want to know, what do you say to people who may not be voting in November or who still may be on the fence when it comes to who to vote for for president? There's, there's no fence in this election. We are at the cliff at the end of the world, and we're staring at the apocalypse. Everybody has to vote. If you want to vote for Donald Trump, that's your right to do it. If you want to vote for Biden and Kamala, they're tremendous people. But you can also vote for Tootsie Warhol. I'm a write-in candidate in every ballot. Tootsie Warhol, you write it in. And you can follow Tootsie Warhol on Instagram, and you should also be following WBAI on Twitter. It's a great Twitter. And, but this is the election of our lives, and you have to get out there and register and vote like our lives depend on it, because they really do. Well, Tootsie Warhol, thank you for joining CityWatch. 
Thank you so much, David. Have a great Labor Day. You too. That was Tootsie Warhol, a performance artist uh, who has made a career doing a satirical performance of Donald Trump. Uh, He's also running for president. He's a social justice activist and even a former prosecutor in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. We're a 24-hour-a-day station. You can find us online around the clock, around the world at WBAI.org. And I love being on the air. I love being able to reach people in New York City, in New Jersey, in Connecticut, and around the world through the website. And getting to host an eclectic show with a great and diverse audience is really a dream come true. Later on, hopefully, we'll have some time to open the phone lines and let some of our listeners call in and weigh in on some of what we're talking today. Because without you, WBAI would not be possible. And we are continuing our summer membership drive right now. And we hope you will consider making a cash contribution to WBAI to help keep us on the air. It's a tough time for most of us right now, news organizations included. There's no doubt about it. But WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing you great coverage, great interviews, diverse interviews. In recent weeks, we've featured some really marquee guests talking about the biggest issues affecting our communities. We've had Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Grace Meng, Carolyn Maloney, soon-to-be Congressman Jamal Bowman up in the Bronx in Westchester. We've had authors, filmmakers, artists, journalists, city and state elected officials talking to me, my co-host Jeff Simmons, who's off today. We've had great pieces in an ongoing series by our correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston, It's called Coronavirus Diaries. You need to check it out on the WBAI website, WBAI.org. And we want to continue bringing you that same caliber of guests, same level of analysis and reporting in the studio and for the past several months now talking by phone. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to WBAI.org. That's give the number two wbai.org and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens and follow the prompts. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy. You can say it in the name of the station and the name of a person who pushed you to to contribute. You can say it in the name of a show. You can say it in the name of City Watch and we would love that. We would love to get some love from you. You can also text WBAI to 41444. Again, text WBAI to 41444. Follow the prompts on your phone. WBAI appreciates the support. City Watch appreciates the support. I appreciate the support. And if you act now, I've said it the past few weeks, but if you act now, I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor. We're the only daily English language print paper in the entire borough of Queens. So if you subscribe to WBAI, you can send me a DM on Twitter. Slide into my DMs. I am at David F. Brand. Again, at David F. Brand. Let me know you pitched into WBAI, and I'll get you the Queen's Daily Eagle soaring to your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. You become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution. Just visit give to WBAI.org. Give the number two WBAI.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing, this is City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM. Tomorrow is Labor Day, which we accept as the end of the summer, sadly. This year is a little a little strange because, I don't know, for some, uh, to some extent, the su- summer hasn't really gotten started um, because of COVID. But, you know, as with pretty much everything, this year is very different. The school plan itself has been a six-month saga. And let's let's go back to March. When teachers, many politicians, many families were pressing the mayor and the governor to close schools, the impact of COVID was already apparent and people were rightfully scared. But the mayor and governor wouldn't do it at first. It would have been a huge burden on families, they reasoned. And and that is definitely true, particularly low-income families who depend on school as a place for children to go so they can go to work and not have to worry about childcare. But by mid-March, the risk of COVID-19 was no longer just a risk. It was real. People were getting sick. People were dying. I remember sitting in the WBAI studio with Jeff, my co-host, on March 15th, when Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that the city was closing schools. And at first, it was just for a few weeks, and they're going to wait and see what happened then. But as COVID got worse, it became clear students couldn't return to school buildings. So that stretched until the end of the school year. 
Now, during the summer, the mayor committed to reopening schools in September and for a while, reopening schools on September 10th. And as that start date approached, there was a lot of pushback from unions representing teachers, principals, school staff who urged the city to halt the start of in-person classes. The United Federation of Teachers even took legal steps to lay the foundation, the legal foundation for a strike. He said air filtration wasn't adequate. It wasn't clear how teachers would teach remote classes as well as in-person classes to students at the buildings. Custodians and school staff said they didn't have the cleaning equipment they needed. Well, last week on September 1st, the city reached an agreement with teachers, staff, and students to delay the start date until September 21st for in-person classes. Now, the DOE, the Department of Education, will scrap the reopening plan if the citywide COVID-19 rate surpasses 3% based on daily test results. The rate as of September 1st was 1.3%. But there are still a lot of unanswered questions, lingering concerns about the resumption of in-person classes. Our next guest, State Senator John Liu, is here to talk about them. Liu is chair of the Senate's Committee on New York City Education. He was city controller from 2010 until 2014, and he's a former city councilman from Queens before that. Here he is on the line, Senator John Liu. Welcome to City Watch. Good morning, David, to you and Jeff and all our listeners. Thank you very much, and thanks for coming on the show. So tell us, what's your take on the school reopening plan? <laughs> you really want to know how much time do we have? <laughs> Uh, let me say that the the city has a plan, and um, it's no plan is ever per, ever perfect. This one uh, certainly has its shortcomings, but I, I don't, you know, rather than sniping at it, uh, which I certainly can do, I really hope that the city will be able to to carry through on this plan and to re- start their remote learning by the 16th and have uh, the schools open for in-person instruction by the 21st. As you said, there are still so many outstanding questions. And, uh, you know, we're we're days away from this delayed start. Uh, I just hope that the Department of Education and City Hall really get their ducks in a row because, uh, because the students need their education, the parents and families need certainty so that they can make their own plans. So much hinges on the proper opening of schools and uh, and indeed our economy hinges upon that just because parents have to work. So uh, I mean I'm happy to answer questions but you know there are there are still lots of outstanding questions that the DOE need to answer for parents. Well teachers are going back Tuesday going back to buildings and there's going to be trainings Mm -hmm. and orientations. So I guess that's going to give us a taste of just how ready the buildings are. But what are some of the, you mentioned many unanswered questions, but what do you, to you, what are some of the biggest lingering concerns and questions right now? Well, you still have a a great deal of uh, questioning, if not pushback from teachers who are still uncertain about exactly how are they going to conduct their in-person instruction versus the teachers who will be on remote? There are still teachers who feel that they have not gotten enough uh, training, much less guidance. So that's one question that teachers will have. And, and let's remember that the teachers ultimately uh, brought City Hall to its knees just because the mayor kept saying, oh, don't worry, schools are safe, schools are safe, safety is our highest priority. But uh, the teachers and principals simply didn't believe the mayor. So that's why the teachers union came up with their own plan and standards for how to determine whether a school building is, in fact, safe or not, notwithstanding whatever the mayor happens to be saying. So they have their own standards. They want to make sure that uh, the teachers want to make sure that their standards, which are uh, in full consultation with health professionals and, and other people who are health experts, uh, that they're, they're they're met. So, for example, one of the questions is, well, what happens if, if if somebody is tested positive? And how will, another question is, how, in fact, will the city maintain beyond the initial determination that a school building is safe? How will they maintain, monitor and maintain the safety of that school building? 
So the, these are some of the questions, and principals have, rightfully have their own questions as well. Uh, how do they maintain the proper level of staffing, given that they have to provide classes in, per, in person in the schools as well as remotely online? They need more staff, more teaching staff, than they normally would have under, under normal circumstances. These are questions that City Hall still hasn't fully answered. And, uh, I mean, again, I hope that they will be able to answer them in the coming days. Well, you are the chair of the Committee on Education in New York City in the state Senate. So what power do you have here, and what, how are you going to exercise that authority to answer some of these questions that you have? As you know, David, our legislative committee holds oversight hearings. We look at budget issues, and we look at uh, broad instructional questions in conjunction with the state education department. Um, in my role, I have been very critical of what the Department of Education has done over the years. Uh, in the last six months, however, I have tried my best not to be an encumbrance on the DOE, understanding that they're dealing with something that nobody ever dealt with or even imagined we'd have to deal with. They, closed, they, they were forced to close schools on barely a week's notice, and they've been putting fire out after fire. But the reality is that people knew schools needed to be reopened at some point, and especially as the fall approach, people kept asking more and more questions. The DOE was still very short on answers. Uh, in fact, they didn't delay the start of school until a little over a week before it was supposed to start. So uh, people are losing patience. And uh, my elected colleagues, as well as the constituents that we represent, want answers. So the, the role that my committee has is we, I have regular conversations with my committee members, and we are in constant communications with Chancellor Carranza and his top deputy chancellors, hoping to be constructive in our feedback to the department and to help however we can with our constituents. So every student in New York is going to be doing some type of remote learning, even if students opt into... Yes going back to school buildings, that will just be two or three days a week. And the rest of the week, they'll be home uh, doing schoolwork online. And initially, there was, there was a problem with ensuring every student had access to web-enabled devices, had access to Wi-Fi. I know that's particularly an issue in homeless shelters where there are tens of thousands of, of school-aged children. So how is the city done six months later in ensuring everyone will be able to access remote learning. It did take some time for the, the city and the Department of Education to ramp up the uh, providing the equipment to families and students who needed the, the remote learning devices, i.e. iPads. Uh, I believe, for the most part, the families have received the devices. There might still be some outstanding requests, which uh, in my it is my understanding that the department is uh, efficiently distributing the devices. The bigger question is, uh, once you have the devices, what kind of signal do you have? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in many cases, this is not just a problem with the education system. It's a, it's a problem in our city as a whole. We, we are so far behind other major cities worldwide in terms of connectivity mm -hmm. and having Wi-Fi strong uh, cell signals. So uh, so we, we have to do a better job as a city overall to get our, get our uh, uh, information superhighway connections to the 21st century. And, of course, that means extending those educational opportunity and that equity to all the kids, all the school kids in our city. Uh, and then even beyond the connectivity, there is also the issue of uh, adequate training for our teachers to teach remote and providing mm -hmm. the content remotely. That, that is yet another challenge that the DOE still needs to fully, uh, fully comply with. Uh, by the way, when, when you said that no student, uh, that every student will be having some remote learning, uh, it, there, it turns out that there are some instances where that that's not actually true. There, there are mm -hmm. uh, some students, uh, 
albeit a small number of students throughout the city, who will be able to get their instruction uh, 100% in person. And that's because uh, each school varies by uh, with the the uh, proportion of learning that's conducted remotely versus in person. In cases where uh, there are some schools where apparently a very high percentage of parents have opted for remote only learning because you know they're they're still skittish about the the health ramifications of sending their kids into school buildings. Uh, in those cases. Uh, there, there are actually enough seats within the school building to accommodate uh, the the, uh, the families who have not opted for remote learning full-time uh, oh. for their kids to actually be in the classroom five days a week. Oh, so that's interesting. But so again, if it's a school it's not with a, a very large number. Yeah, there's, there's, a range of the, uh, there's a range of capabilities and blend of remote versus in-person learning at every single school. That's interesting. So I guess if school has a thousand students and eight hundred opt to do remote only, then there's two hundred students who will be going to the building, and the school might have That's the exactly, capability of. Yeah. Exactly correct. I, I the example that I heard was that uh, that at one school, sixty percent of the parents opted uh, full time, one hundred percent remote learning, which meant hmm. that the school building needed to accommodate forty percent. Now. Forty percent is still beyond the uh, the the range that is supposed to be, you know, if a classroom is is meant for twenty five students, you're not really supposed to have more than eight students or so. Uh, but it, it could also be a, a school that doesn't happen to be severely overcrowded, like many of the the New York mm-hmm. City schools. And many of the schools in your district in Northeast Queens are particularly crowded. Very crowded, yes. I want to shift a bit while we're talking. Which is why there are so many questions about exactly what the Department of Education is doing to to get ready for this semester as upon us. Mm -hmm. I want to shift a bit while we're talking and talk about the state's role here in in housing and evictions because the state's eviction moratorium, the current one, ends October 1st. The court system has said that they're getting out of the policymaking business and they won't extend the current moratorium because they're saying that's – not their job. It's up to the other branches of government, the legislative branch and the executive branch. Uh, the governor could extend the moratorium as he has in the past for 30 days at a time or a short period at a time. But advocates are really calling on the Senate and the Assembly to reconvene and pass a measure halting evictions for a longer and clear cut period of time. Uh, landlords, on the other hand, say that they're in a bind because they can't evict tenants who aren't paying, and meanwhile they have to pay their mortgage and their property tax. So what do you think needs to be done when it comes to housing and evictions on the legislative level? This is, when it comes to housing, you're talking about probably the the most, the, the, the expense that takes the largest percentage of people's incomes. In New York City, it's a much, it's, so many people spend half of their income on housing, and when the, you don't have any income, you can't even pay any rent. So for me, it's not just about extending the evictions. I, I do firmly believe that we are still very much in a pandemic emergency crisis and that people shouldn't be kicked, shouldn't be kicked out of their homes. Uh, so the moratorium is still needed. Uh, but it, it goes beyond the moratorium is about the fact that ultimately, even when the moratorium is lifted, uh, people are still not going to be able to pay all the, the, the months of back rent that they now owe. So there needs to be some measure of rent cancellation, some kind of way to help people dig out of this economic hole that is not to their own making, but because... But came about because of this worldwide crisis. Now, key to this the solution to this, this dilemma is the federal government stepping up. This is not only a health pandemic, it is an economic crisis, the proportions of which this country has never seen. And state and local governments, you asked me about my role as a state legislator, we, we certainly understand this, the solution, I mean, the, the problem, but we don't have the resources for the solution that can only come from the federal government. So, we're, I'm hopeful that when gov- when when Congress reconvenes, uh, I believe the Senate is reconvening 
this coming week, Tuesday. Uh, I think the House is coming back the following week. Uh, we need them to come up with a package that will be costly, no doubt, but much more cost-effective than if they do nothing and allow the economy, especially housing, to continue to go down this spiral. Well, on a state level, I think you sponsor a bill that would extend that eviction moratorium until a year after the state, the governor lifts the state of emergency related to the coronavirus, correct? Can you talk about that bill? Well, the bill simply allows people, well, first of all, as I said before, we're still in this emergency situation. So it's just, it would just be wrong for anybody to be kicked out of their homes. Mm -hmm. The, the, the idea of the year time period is that given that this pandemic has been going on for so long and, and many people have been unemployed or lost their jobs for long periods of time, have not had their source of income. It's going to take some time for people to stabilize their finances. And as I said before, housing is by far the largest expense for, for most New Yorkers. So, you know, it's not like people would be able to catch up within a month or two. It, it, would, it would probably take a year at least for them to catch up on their bills and to ultimately uh, get back on sound financial foot. Well, Senator Liu, in the last couple moments we have here, you're a former city controller. You ran for mayor in 2013. There's still time to get into both of those wide open races for 2021. Are you planning to run for either of those positions? I am shocked that you would ask me that, Dave. I mean, it's not like you have ever asked me that question before. <laughs> I think I have the asked 20, that once. 2021 is, is an upcoming election, but you know what? 2020 is the election that we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. We have a we have a we have a dysfunctional Washington cadre of people led it led by uh, I don't even want to say his name, but uh, people need to vote this year and not only to vote in New York, but civic minded New Yorkers can get on the phone and get on their texts and help persuade people in the swing states that we need we desperately need a change of direction for this country in the White House, as well as, uh, I'm a Democrat, so I will be very blunt and say as well as the Republican-controlled United States Senate. We need to change that. We need to change the makeup of that body so that we can put the country back on the right track. And while I'm at it with the the voting plug, make sure there's there's no reason why anybody should not have requested the absentee ballots already. Request your absentee ballot, please, nycabsentee.com. It takes about 20 seconds to request your ballot. You just have to remember what your birthday is. Get the ballot and return. Once you get the ballot, fill it in, return it, send it back in as soon as possible. And if you decide that you still want to vote in person anyway, you can go vote in person. The Board of Elections simply will not count the ballot that you mailed in. Well, State Senator John Liu from Queens, thank you for joining City Watch today. Thanks for having me, David. Say hello to Jeff. Will do. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand, and that was State Senator John Liu from Queens talking about the school reopening plan here in New York City. He's the chair of the Senate's Committee on New York City Education talked a bit about the eviction moratorium and what the state can do. And really, it sounds like the state is really depending on the federal government to step in and provide funding to make some tenants and landlords whole amid this economic crisis that's affecting so many people's housing. And you heard I asked, is he planning to run for anything in 2021? There's not didn't answer that. So we'll see. TBD, I guess we have two wide open races. He's a former city controller. He ran for mayor in 2013. We are once again electing controller and mayor, so see if he enters that race. But also understand he has his own general election coming up in November and, as he said, totally focused on 2020. But we shall see, I guess. And we can make that same statement for a lot of politicians in New York City right now because there are a ton of open seats in city council. There are a ton of city council members who are term limited looking for their next jobs. 
uh, people running for mayor, people running for city controller. And you, you better believe we're going to get a lot of them on our show in the next in the coming months as we look ahead past 2020 to next year, 2021. And we can't do it without you. WBAI depends on contributions from listeners like you to continue bringing great coverage and interviews. We want to continue doing that level of reporting, the great interviews we get here that Jeff gets, that I can get here with members of Congress, state legislators, also some talented and influential artists, filmmakers. The other day, Jeff had the filmmaker behind the new documentary, Yousef Hawkins, uh, or I'm sorry, the new Yousef Hawkins documentary on HBO about young man killed by a white mob in Bensonhurst back in the 80s. So listeners can become buddies by going to give to, that's give the number two, WBAI.org, and clicking buddies to become a BAI buddy on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens and follow the prompts. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program, in the name of all the programs, or in the name of CityWatch. Show us some love. Say you're becoming a BAI buddy because you like listening to City Watch on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. Text WBAI to 41444. Follow the prompts on your phone. We appreciate the support. And I said it before. I'll say it again. If you act now, I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor. We're the only daily print paper. Uh, the only daily English language print paper, I should clarify, in the entire borough of Queens. And if you subscribe to WBAI, you can DM me on Twitter, slide into my DMs. I am David F. Brand, at David F. Brand. Let me know that you became a BAI buddy, and I'll get you that Queens Daily Eagle soaring into your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. Become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution by visiting give to the number two, WBAI.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing. All right, we've got another great guest today. We had Tootsie Warhol, performance artist, who is running a satirical anti-Trump campaign for president. We had State Senator John Liu talking about school reopening plan in New York City. And now we have another great guest. His name is Patrick Houston, and he is a climate justice organizer focused on the climate crisis and its impact here in New York City and New York State with the organization New York Communities for Change. Now, Houston played a key role in developing a multiracial coalition that ran campaigns at the neighborhood, city, and state levels to oppose a natural gas pipeline that was, that was slated to run through Jamaica Bay uh, from New Jersey, originating in Pennsylvania. It was going to pump fracked gas into uh, the gas system by linking up on the Rockway Peninsula. It was called the Williams Pipeline. And opponents of that plan pointed out a few problems. They pointed out potential for spillage, the potential for disruption to the environment, and also that it furthered New York's dependence on fossil fuels and on frack gas. So Patrick did a amazing work organizing against that and actually led to uh, the state rejecting the plan for the Williams Pipeline. So here to talk with us about combating the climate crisis in New York City and in our area is Patrick Houston. Welcome to City Watch. Thanks a lot, David. Happy to be here. So what are the impacts of the climate crisis that we're already seeing here in New York City? And what does the future hold, especially for areas near the water like Far Rockaway? Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're framing it as, you know, that we're already seeing. We're used to speaking about the climate crisis as something that's far out and coming. Uh, but in reality, it's here now. Um, and already many people um, across New York City have directly felt the effects of Hurricane Sandy. Um, specifically in areas like the Far Rockaways, um, what we saw as a result of Hurricane Sandy um, was just how vulnerable areas like that are. Um, and now, you know, eight years later, there are still 1,700 Build It Back projects that are still undergoing. Um, I'm in contact with several people out in the Rockaways, and I know uh, one woman, Linda, who's, who's block floods every time it, every time it rains. Um, and 
we also know that by the end of the century, if we continue on the course that we're on, the Rockaways is projected to be underwater. So already we're seeing, um, we've seen the impact of Hurricane Sandy just in early August. Um, Hurricane Isaias um, had a had a significant effect, not just in the Rockaways, but across New York City. Um, so about 260,000 power outages. Um, and then the other thing that we're seeing is increased heat waves um, across the city. Hmm. Um, and so in July alone of this year, uh, or July of this year, was the, the one of the 10 hottest Julys ever recorded. And so that has serious impacts for communities, especially low-income communities and black and brown communities that don't have access to um, air conditioning um, and other luxuries to help us through the, uh, the worst of extreme weather events. So how, how is that threatening health in lower-income communities, especially places that aren't located by the water and that maybe not aren't at risk for flooding or aren't at risk for, of rising sea levels right now, but are still experiencing some negative health consequences of the climate crisis? Yeah, for sure. Um, so one, you know, one of the things is just the, the um, dealing with extreme heat itself, um, just the, 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 the pressure that the, that is on, on folks, especially elderly folks um, or people with pre-existing health conditions. Uh, the other thing that we see is, um, you know, once we, on extreme heat days, uh, which in New York City is 90 degrees and above, on extreme heat days, um, when many more people are cranking on the air conditioners, then often the city has to turn on its um, certain power plants called peaker plants. Mm. And these peaker plants are located and distributed throughout the, the city, throughout the region, and they give off direct um, pollution closer to the communities. And so what we're seeing is not only when we are um, uh, have to respond to these extreme weather events, this, this extreme heat, um, do we further exacerbate the, the climate crisis by putting out more climate pollution, but also that we are cranking on these plants that release a lot of co-pollutants that affect people's health, especially people who have asthma or other respiratory um, illnesses. And so these are some of the direct ways that the extreme, um, the, the extreme heat days, which are projected to, to uh, double by the 2050s and triple by the 2080s, um, and have already increased 50% um, in the 2020s. Um, uh, this is, these are some of the effects that we can are starting to see already and can expect to see more of. And you mentioned the peaker plants, and that's been an, an issue throughout the city, and I cover Queens specifically, uh, and there is a peaker plant in Astoria where they use oil burning equipment to create extra energy, in during periods when electricity use is very high in New York, for example, during a uh, during a heat wave when everyone has their ACs running, and so they need to generate some more electricity, so they burn oil. And you mentioned very close to communities, there's homes right near these giant power plants, and that's definitely I think more and more people are recognizing that as an issue. But what should we be advocating for right now in New York City, in New York State, when it comes to addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that um, we can approach approach this. And there's a lot of things we can do right here in New York State, New York City, that have an effect um, right here and, and beyond. Um, so first off, just to frame it, there's there's two ways of looking at um, what we're facing with, with the climate emergency. Um, you know, we need to move rapidly to 100% renewables, so we have to massively and quickly scale up our large-scale wind and solar, our community-scale solar, um, and other projects. But in addition to developing renewable energy and moving to 100% there, we can also, there's a huge opportunity to uh, improve our energy efficiency, which drastically decreases the demand for, for energy in the first place. And so there's a, a on, on those two lines, there's a couple different campaigns that people can get involved in right now. The first is, um, for some context, is to ensure the strongest implementation of Local Law 97. Local Law 97 was a bill that passed last year to cut pollution from New York City. Are you there, Patrick? Having a little bit of time hearing Patrick on the line. 
Testament. He is talking about Local Law 97, which is climate legislation that would change the uh, change the efficiency standards for buildings because buildings in New York City release a ton of carbon into the environment. And there's a new law that buildings have to retrofit to release fewer carbons into the environment. Um, still having a hard time hearing Patrick if he's still on the line and hopefully he can rejoin us if not. But, you know, he's talking about the, the impact of the climate crisis on New York City and how we are already experiencing it. Uh, we see it with hurricanes that are worse than ever, with flooding that is worse than ever. And he mentioned July being the hottest month, the hottest July on record, and that's particularly felt in lower-income communities, and uh, which are usually lower-income communities are communities of color here in New York City. And there was a big New York Times report, kind of focused on the amount of concrete, the amount of pavement in these communities, the not enough parkland, and so because of that, it kind of concentrates heat. And so maybe the temperature says it's 90 degrees, but it might feel like 90, it might feel a little lower with breeze in a more open environment, but it's actually baking. It could be 100, 110 degrees in a, in a community that's lower income that has a lot more concentrated pavement. Um, we got Patrick back on the line. So sorry, we lost you for a little bit, Patrick, talking about Local Law 97. We have about two more minutes, so I wanna, want you to be able to explain that more clearly. Okay, for sure. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll finish up reviewing that one. So that's so the, the great news is, is that this massive landmark piece of legislation passed in New York City last year. Um, it's going to drastically cut pollution from New York City's building stock. And now mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to make it stronger through an amendment called Intro 1947. And so people can get involved in, in that campaign by reaching out to New York communities for change to cut pollution from New York City's building stock and create thousands of jobs. And then the other push, you know, there's several others, but, you know, a packet of these two more. Um, one other one is a big push to um, stop yet another pipeline going through Brooklyn, the North Brooklyn Pipeline. So mm -hmm. groups like Sane Energy Project, SaneEnergy.org, are doing good work there because we can't lock ourselves into years more fossil fuel infrastructure. And then and finally, just, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we just have a, a couple more minutes. So if you want to get to that last point, and then I'll, I have another question I want to ask you if you want to just talk to that, about that last bit of advocacy. For sure. And then the final piece there is, you know, um, there is a statewide campaign pressing Governor Cuomo to take more action on climate. And there's especially two things that he can begin to take moves on that will make a big difference. One is taxing the rich so that we can fund a Green New Deal for New York State. And the other is pushing for public power so that we can democratize, decarbonize and decommodify New York's energy supply. This way, when people are paying their energy bills every month, it's going towards optimal energy that's reliable and green. And, and Patrick, how can people find out about your work in New York Communities for Change? Right. So for these campaigns, people can go to both New York Communities um, for Change org online um, and also MGND, Movement for a Green New Deal, MGND.org. And finally, for fights like the North Brooklyn Pipeline, SaneEnergy.org. And, you know, in this moment, David, we need as many people as possible getting involved so that we can protect the interests of the many instead of the, the corporate elite here in New York City, New York State, that are, you know, wreaking havoc on our climate. Well, Patrick Houston from New York Communities for Change, thank you for joining City Watch. We'll have to have you back on soon. Thanks so much, David. Take it easy. You are listening to City Watch on 99.5 WBAI and streaming at WBAI.org. We're coming up on the end of the show here. And I want to thank everyone for listening to City Watch today on this Labor Day weekend. Thank you for joining us, spending some time with us. I'm your host, David Brand, and I hope you have a great rest of the day today, a great rest of the weekend. I also want to thank my guests, State Senator John Liu, Climate Justice Advocate Patrick Houston from New York Communities for Change, and performance artist Tootsie Warhol. Again, I'm your host, David Brand. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter at David F. Brand. That's at David F. Brand. City Watch is off next week. We're preempted by another another show. 
Uh, but we will be back on in two weeks. My co-host Jeff Simmons will be hosting then and sure, as always, to have a really great show for our listeners. Let's keep the coronavirus down here in New York City by staying vigilant, by wearing our masks, by washing our hands. COVID-19 is a justice issue. Wear your mask, wash your hands. We are still all in this together. Thank you. City fam, strong, resilient, and proud, now more than ever, it's super important that every New Yorker counts. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting us all, but it's affecting our black and brown communities the most. And the only way to get the programs and the funding that we deserve is to fill out the census. It only comes once every 10 years, but the data determines billions of dollars of funding for our hospitals, emergency services, and healthcare programs, which we need now more than ever. It's just 10 questions, and by law, your information cannot be shared. There are no citizenship questions on the census and you have a right to be counted regardless of your immigration status. So it's up to us to make sure that New York gets the funding it deserves. Go to my2020census.gov and let's be counted. Sending you so much love. Hello, I'm Max Schmid, member of the WBAI Local Station Board. WBAI's local station board is the Pacifica Foundation Board, which advises local management and operations. The next meeting of the local station board will be Wednesday, September 9th at 7 p.m. Because of coronavirus precautions and restrictions, the meeting will be a remote access meeting, which will be accessible to the public. It will include an opportunity for public comment. The world challenges us right now with a lot that is negative. The LSB may be discussing WBAI's potential as alternative radio for envisioning positive possibilities. Again, that's Wednesday, September 9th at 7 p.m. The meeting, held through the Zoom remote meeting service, can be accessed by calling in the United States 929-929. 205-6099 and entering the meeting ID 922.457.2995. Once again, that telephone number to call, 929-205-6099. And the meeting ID is 922.457.2995. A link to instructions, including for listening over the web and how to submit written comments, will be available through WBAI's main web page. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to access the meeting? No, but why not? Hey, what's going on? This is Tito Nieves. I want you all to know that I listen to Consabor Latino, Montuneando con Marisol, alternating Sundays from 3 to 6 on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. Listen live. Also, on archive when I miss the show. You know what I love about this show? They inform me about everything. Who recorded, who sang, who composed. And you know why shows like this, they're not around anymore. That's why they've been existing for 34 years. And you know what? I like it like that all the time. <laughs> We're the New Orleans Jazz Vipers at WBAI, New York City.